This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 30th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard, filling in for Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from John Bohannon about growing tensions between the mathematics community and the National Security Agency. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Suzanne Bard. There's genetic evidence that as much as 2% of the genome of 21st century Asians and Europeans may come from Neanderthals. And our first story involves some ancient interspecies hanky-panky. In 2008, scientists discovered a 55,000-year-old skull in an Israeli cave. Why do they now think this skull provides evidence that Cro-Magnon man and Neanderthals were interbreeding at that time, Dave? Well, Suzanne, that's been the big question. As you mentioned, there has been this evidence that there has been interbreeding with humans and Neanderthals in the past. One of the big mysteries is, though, especially in this part of the world where it was thought that this mating may have taken place somewhere potentially around the Middle East, we have evidence that Neanderthals were there probably as recently as 49,000 years ago. But we really didn't see evidence that modern humans had been there any later than about 80,000 years ago. So in order for them to have mated, they obviously had to have been there at the same time. And that's why this new skull is is so important. As you mentioned, it's about 55,000 years old. It was found in this Israeli cave. And what's really important about that dating, and they're not positive about the dating because they actually had to do some dating, not on the skull itself, because they had a hard time getting the DNA, but actually from some calcite or calcium carbonate, which is the same component of stalactites and stalagmites that had formed on the skull. That's how they were able to date it. This 55,000-year uh, time point suggests that 
indeed humans may have been in this region around the same time that Neanderthals were. Now, geneticists that have calculated the tiny amount of Neanderthal DNA that's still present in some of us have used this percentage to estimate how far back interbreeding may have occurred. How well does the age of this skull match up with those estimates, Dave? Yeah, it's a good point. The genetics analysis actually matches up pretty well. The genetic analysis suggests that the inbreeding took place somewhere between 50 and 60,000 years ago. And this new skull, if it really is 55,000 years old, is really smack in the middle of that time point. So it really lends credence not only to the timing, but again to this idea that this uh, hookup between humans and Neanderthals probably happened somewhere in the Middle East. And it sounds like they kind of came across a skull by accident. This is a cave known as Manat Cave. It's about 40 kilometers north of numerous other sites where uh, Neanderthals and other modern human skeletons have been found. As you mentioned, it was discovered in 2008 and actually discovered when a bulldozer shaved off part of its roof, exposing the cave underneath. And then some intrepid explorers went inside, discovered the skull, which is actually um, sitting on a perch on a ledge of the cave, and and nobody really knows why that is. That's still an open mystery, but that really led to the discovery in this new paper. And the features of this skull appear to closely resemble those of the Cro-Magnons that went on to take over Western Europe. Is that right? Well, yeah, that's the other interesting thing about the story. Nobody really knows why Neanderthals disappeared, but one of the going theories is that modern humans, when they started going into this part of the world, outcompeted Neanderthals and essentially drove them to extinction. And this skull actually may represent the ancestors of these uh, modern humans that actually did end up taking over Europe. So not only is this evidence of mating between humans and Neanderthals, but it actually may have been the beginning of the end for Neanderthals as well. So this person's descendants may well have been making life hell for Neanderthals rather than making love to them. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay. Interesting story. Our next story takes us back to a period of Romanian history that many people would rather forget. One policy of Nicolae Ceausescu's brutal regime was to boost the population by making contraception and abortion illegal. This resulted in high level of child abandonment, with many babies sent to state-run orphanages where they received little one-on-one human interaction. After the fall of the regime, researchers were able to track the effects of this early deprivation on brain development in some of these children as they matured. What have they found, Dave? Well, they found this actually pretty dramatic consequences of being raised in these bleak orphanages in Romania. The researchers carried out MRI scans, so brain scans, of children that had grown up in the orphanages at least until they were about eight years old. They compared those to brain scans of children that had been moved uh, early on from the orphanages into foster care where they got a much better upbringing, and also just generally from children in the local community. And what they saw is they saw a lot less white matter in the brains of children that had grown up in orphanages. And this loss of white matter affected nerve circuits that are involved in general cognitive performance, emotion, maintaining attention, and sensory processing. So this may have had some really dramatic impacts on the brains of these children that were raised in the Romanian orphanages. But there's some good news there for the kids that were taken out early on and raised by foster families. That's right. The children that were taken out early on actually showed a rebound in their white matter, suggesting that some of these deficits can be corrected if the intervention is early enough. What's really interesting about the study is there had been this anecdotal evidence that children that are young, that are not given the proper care, the proper attention, can have a lot of emotional, mental problems 
later in life. But it's been really hard. Obviously, it's not ethical to actually subject children to these types of conditions for the purposes of science. So this is sort of a natural experiment. And now researchers are starting to get some of the first data that corroborates some of these ideas that, yes, indeed, abandonment, neglect, especially for very young children, can really have some dramatic impacts on their brains. So they found these differences in white matter in the brain, but do they have to follow this up with behavioral studies? That's right. Yeah, this is just sort of the first step. They really have to confirm that a lot of these problems, a lot of this degradation they're seeing in the white matter in these various regions of the brain actually do result in the type of emotional, mental deficits that are seen in other children that are uh, neglected at an early age. And the reversals in white matter losses seen in the kids raised by nurturing foster parents, is there a chance that this same kind of thing could work for children in other places who have suffered neglect? Yeah, I think that's what researchers are sort of hoping here, that this study indicates that if the intervention is early enough, then potentially there may be a way to save these children before it's too late. Well, I'm glad to know there's at least some good news coming out of this story, Dave. Hopefully our final story won't blow up in our face. You'd think scientists would have long ago figured out the details behind what causes this. That is, the explosion caused when a chunk of sodium reacts with water, a popular demonstration used by the likes of Bill Nye and high school chemistry teachers everywhere to get kids to care about science. What's the accepted explanation for how this explosion is supposed to work, Dave? And why weren't some Czech chemists content to leave it at that? <laughs> well, sodium is what's known as an alkali metal. And this is a group of very reactive elements. And they're actually so reactive that it's kind of hard to get them in their natural form because they're just so reactive with everything around them. And that's why when you dump sodium into water, what we do know is that there's a flurry of electrons that abandons the sodium. It interacts with the water, it forms hydrogen gas and other byproducts. This reaction generates heat and melts the sodium. And because hydrogen is flammable, the whole thing ignites. So it's, it's a pretty dramatic demonstration. But researchers always suspected there was maybe something, a piece missing from that puzzle, that one of the mysteries here is you've got a chunk of sodium. And how is it, if it's just the surface of the sodium interacting with the water, you wouldn't expect such a dramatic explosion because there's so much of the sodium that's not exposed to the water, at least right away. And that's what this new study was about, is trying to figure out what are we missing here? How is this as reactive as it actually is? Okay, so they set up high-speed cameras, and what did they discover? Yeah, they set up high-speed cameras, and what they did was they actually took a mixture of sodium and another alkali metal, potassium, and that allowed them to slowly drip the sodium solution into the water, and that allowed them to sort of see this as a step-by-step -step process. They took high-speed video, and you actually can see a video of this on the site, and what's really interesting, what happened is less than a millisecond after the reaction begins, tens to hundreds of spiky metal protrusions from the sodium pierce the water. They sort of form these spikes out in the water. And what that allows is it allows a lot more of the sodium than researchers thought to interact with the water, which helps really explain why this is such a dramatic reaction. Now, let's be honest. Explosions are cool and all, but is there a practical use for this explanation or do they just like blowing things up? Well, the researchers nominally say that potentially this research could be used to prevent 
these types of explosions, which can really be dangerous if they happen outside of the science classroom, maybe even sometimes if they do happen inside the science classroom. But at the end of the day, they say, we just like watching things explode. So maybe not such a practical application here. (laughs) All right. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Suzanne, we've got a story about how your circadian clock, that's your internal biological clock, could affect how good you are at sports. Also a story about why dirty glaciers melt just as fast as clean ones. For our policy blog, Science Insider, we've got a story about some controversial new ideas for the National Institutes of Health. Also a story about a new NASA satellite that could dramatically improve weather forecasts. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Suzanne. David Grimm is the editor for our daily news site. I'm Suzanne Bard. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog Science Insider at news.sciencemag.org. Next, the dependence of intelligence agencies on brilliant mathematicians has gained attention recently with the release of The Imitation Game, which dramatizes Alan Turing's involvement in the race to crack the Nazis' naval enigma codes during World War II. Today, in the United States, the National Security Agency employs an undisclosed number of mathematicians in cryptography, data analysis, and related activities. But it's no stranger to controversy. Contributing correspondent for science John Bohannon examines the growing tension between talented mathematicians and the NSA in this week's special coverage of privacy issues. The NSA is the gold standard for white hat hacking, supposedly. I mean, these are the guys who are supposed to protect sensitive information while also trying to gather intelligence on so-called enemies of the state abroad. And something that has changed between the NSA and the mathematicians that they rely on to do all this work is that a couple of years ago, a guy by the name of Edward Snowden, a contractor for the NSA, released a big collection of documents, internal memos and emails, which revealed that, among other things, the NSA has been snooping on Americans on a massive scale, a far cry from their official mission of protecting U.S. information and only snooping on foreigners and enemies, and also that they had possibly undermined one of the most important standards for Internet security, which is not only unlawful and arguably illegal, but undermines the entire system. And uh, that poses a real problem for NSA recruiters who have traditionally enjoyed a very cozy relationship with academic mathematicians and computer scientists on university campuses. And so I thought that actually is the more interesting story. How do these revelations from Snowden change the dynamic for the NSA recruiters? So that's what got me into this. All right. So let's back up a little bit. The NSA has had a relationship with these top-level mathematicians for a very long time. Decades. Right. So why are they so essential to the organization? And what are they actually doing? So everything the NSA does is mathematical. If you want to make a code that's hard to break or break someone else's code, you need ever more sophisticated mathematics to evade other people's tricks and make tricks of your own. And that takes mathematicians and computer scientists. And it's really not clear exactly what you end up doing when you work for the NSA because it's classified. And I've spoken to many mathematicians for this story, some of whom who have done work for the NSA. And the common descriptor of the job is making and solving puzzles. 
extremely hard, elaborate puzzles. So the NSA regularly needs new talent. How do they go about recruiting mathematicians on college campuses? Well, traditionally, they interact with mathematicians and mathematics students on campuses during careers fairs, occasions that they engineer, all kinds of instances. And there are actually NSA representatives on campuses permanently. Not every campus, but a lot of them, dozens. And their job is to identify the talent. Now, I understand that the NSA's total budget is classified, but some of its budget is actually revealed by the number of published research papers that acknowledge NSA support. How have these numbers waxed and waned over the years? That's right. The NSA has what's called a black budget. That's also true of the CIA. The amount of money that Congress gives these agencies is secret. However, there is one tiny part of the budget each year that's designated for mathematical sciences. The NSA puts a few million dollars into individual grants to researchers, mathematicians usually, to do their work. Unrelated to the NSA mission, it's really just a freebie. The official reason for doing so is that the NSA has a vested interest in a strong domestic mathematics community. And so this is one way they do that. And they actually get the American Mathematical Society to do the peer review for that grant program. And perhaps because of that official over-the-table relationship, each year the NSA has actually released its mathematical sciences budget as public information. However, it's unclear what that money actually produces. And so I thought, well, one way we could do that is to see how many papers acknowledge that funding. If you give a mathematician a grant, she's not going to produce a paper immediately. It may take a year or two. So there's some time lag in the system, but we should see the general trends of NSA funding in the academic literature. So I used an open source tool made by Christian Kreibich called scholar.py. It's a Python library. And I worked with him to scrape data from Google Scholar. So I basically just looked for what words followed NSA grant or National Security Agency grant in papers published over the past 20 years. And two grant codes quickly emerged. They're just arbitrary codes that are used internally, presumably, by the NSA. But they were very useful because if you map out their distribution over time, you can see that right after 9-11, the H98-230, this new grant, basically kicked in. And the number of papers that acknowledge it really mushroomed. You could see it kicking in around 2003 and onwards, and they've reached the highest levels ever over the past few years. And what are some of the other ways in which the NSA supports or even influences mathematics in academia? The grants to individual researchers is a drop in the bucket. There's much more money being funneled into academic research in the form of institutional grants and programs that run across the nation through high school right up to undergrad. And on the other end, you've got a program that creates what the NSA calls lablets, tiny labs within academic departments. So it's targeted funding. Now let's go back to Edward Snowden's revelations. The massive surveillance of email and phone records of U.S. citizens is what got most of the media's attention. But some mathematicians are just as concerned about an even more shadowy Internet security issue. They believe that the NSA intentionally created a flawed algorithm that gave them a so-called backdoor into encrypted communications. What's this all about, John? So whenever you go online and do something 
that requires sensitive information to pass over the internet. For example, if you check your bank account or even send emails, those messages are encrypted, usually by a series of extremely large numbers. Now, you want to keep those numbers secret. Your computer makes a set of large numbers, and so does the party on the other end, for example, your bank. And as long as those big numbers stay secret, all that's being passed between you looks like gobbledygook to anyone who eavesdrops on it. it. cannot be decoded without knowing what those big numbers are. The way we do it is we use pseudo-random number generation. This is a mathematical trick where you generate extremely large numbers that can in principle be guessed, but if you do it right, it will take more computational power than the entire world currently has to crack it. And so that allows you to safely exchange information with your banks and send emails and so forth. The pseudo-random number generators that are built into various applications that your computer uses to create secure communications follow standards. And those standards are often agreed upon with the stamp of approval of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST. It's a federal agency whose job is to make good standards that everyone relies on. And they do such a good job of it generally that it's not just companies in the U.S. that follow their standards. The whole world often follows suit. And so people were pretty shocked at one of the revelations from the Snowden documents, which indicated that a flaw in one of the pseudo-random number generators that had been approved by NIST was actually engineered by the NSA and they quietly pushed very hard to make sure that NIST accepted it. So that's your back door. And NIST actually withdrew its support for this flawed algorithm last year. That's right. When this story hit the news and became a scandal, NIST walked away from that standard and officially withdrew it in the spring. And they also put out a report post-mortem on the whole situation that makes it clear that they were all but taking orders from the NSA on this one. So mathematicians who are critical of the NSA and suspicious of the pseudorandom number flaw say that this is the last nail in the coffin. Now, does the American Mathematical Society have a vested interest in maintaining ties with the NSA? They do, arguably, but I spoke with a lot of AMS mathematicians, including David Vogan, the current president whose term is just ending. And the picture is really not so clear in terms of whether the resistance in the AMS leadership to breaking ties with the NSA or even just making an ethical statement about it. They didn't even want to do that. It's not clear where that reluctance is coming from. It may just be that the society doesn't see itself as a political organization and just doesn't want to get involved with politics. It's very hard to say. The only thing that's clear is that in spite of David Vogan's efforts, the answer was a definitive no for cutting ties with the NSA or even making a public statement about the matter. So there's division within the mathematics community. Some people are very suspicious of what the NSA is doing. And then are there some mathematicians that don't think that the NSA would compromise U.S. citizens' rights? There is at least one. There's a mathematician who submitted a letter to the AMS journal, where a lot of this debate has been playing out, who defended the NSA. He also identified himself as a longtime employee of the NSA. But my impression is that the vast majority of mathematicians actually are 
pretty indifferent to the situation. And then there's a tiny portion of them who are passionate either for or against the NSA being able to do what it needs to do. So, you know, some people like David Vogan are adamant that this is unethical and that compromising internet security is equivalent to committing medical malpractice or the way he put it was promoting false medical research for profit. And other people, like this fellow who submitted the letter, whom I couldn't contact, by the way, I tried, says it's all innuendo and that at worst it's a few bad apples in an organization, but the NSA is in general full of people who want to protect Americans. I don't find that hard to imagine either. All right, John. So for those of us who aren't math geeks, it can be hard to wrap our heads around what happens to our data once it leaves the safety of our homes. But this strained relationship between mathematicians and the NSA can actually affect every one of us. Can you comment on the bigger picture? I don't think we should give up hope just yet that it's impossible to have a secure internet. It's ever evolving. So standards are always getting better and then getting compromised. And it's not clear where this is all heading. I don't think anyone should be surprised that the NSA has tried and it seems perhaps even succeeded to compromise secure communications. After all, that's their job, ultimately. They're just supposed to do it within the bounds of U.S. law. But I also think we're just left in a state of uncertainty. And we're all just going to have to wait and see how this plays out. Right now, the people who are the smartest in the world at making and breaking codes are supposedly on the same team. And hopefully it stays that way. We'll see. Well, it's certainly a fascinating issue. And thank you so much for talking with me, John. Thank you. John Bohannon writes about growing tensions between mathematicians and the NSA in this week's special coverage of privacy issues in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.